All right, so uh, we are in a series right now leading up to Easter called Famous Last Words, and we're looking at the last words that Jesus gives before he dies and finding kind of the meaning in them. And famous last words are important. Think about maybe what you would want your last words to be if you knew that you were going to die, if it was that unfortunate that you were going to do it. I know for me, my famous last words, whatever, if I knew I was going to die, I'd want to know my wife and children to know that I love them. I think that's what I would say. I want them to know that I care for them. Look through a list of uh, a bunch of different famous people that have had words that are famous and uh, found them really interesting. Some of them are super meaningful, some of them are not. Um, Probably the most famous words come from Julius Caesar, right before he's assassinated. His words are, e tu, brute, right? Uh, His best friend betrays him. Uh, Frank Sinatra, before he died, his famous words were, I'm losing it. So, not really sure what that means. Winston Churchill said, I'm bored with it all, in an English accent, his last words before he died. He said, I'm bored with it all. Thomas Edison said, it's very beautiful over here. So maybe he was starting to have visions of what was coming next. H.G. Wells said, go away, I'm all right. (laughs) Obviously not. But he had a time machine, so... Oscar Wilde, I love this one. Oscar Wilde's last words, he says, either the wallpaper goes or I do. So, sounds like he lost that one. Uh, Here's a great one, Leonardo da Vinci. It's one of these really meaningful last words. He said, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quantity it should have. Leonardo da Vinci, wow. Like if the Mona Lisa really, you know, flopped, right? And didn't reach the quality it should have. Uh, Ludwig Beethoven, uh, Ludwig van Beethoven said this, Friends applaud, the comedy is finished. I thought that was really interesting, the way that he had the outlook on his life. Emily Dickinson said, I must go in, the fog is rising. She's always so dramatic, but beautiful words. Must go in, the fog is rising. And then Nathan Hale, probably one of my favorite quotes, said, I regret, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. I thought that was pretty cool. So just different last words people have before they, they go to the afterlife. But we've been looking at the words that Jesus says from the cross. And there's actually seven sayings that Jesus proclaims from the cross. And as we look at them, what we find is that Jesus is displaying kind of what he's doing on the cross. He's displaying who he is, his attributes, and also what's happening in this moment when he dies. And so last week, we well, actually two weeks ago, we started it, and we talked about how As he was dying, he prayed this prayer to God. Father, forgive these people for they know not what they do. So we talked about forgiveness. The heart of Jesus, the heart of God is to forgive those who have wronged us. And so if we want to be like Jesus, we have to understand what forgiveness is. And forgiveness is this very powerful force in this world and it's very hard to do. So we talked about what does it mean to be forgiven by God and then also to offer forgiveness to other people. And then last week, last week we looked at these words of Jesus as he was crucified between two criminals. Uh, he had this conversation with one of them. He had a conversation with both of them, actually, but with one of them, he looks at him and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And we, we talked about how there's this power that Jesus has to save someone, to offer salvation at the, the very end of that person's life, no matter what that person has done, he offers them paradise. And then paradise is this greater narrative that we're all a part of. Paradise is this place uh, that we call heaven, where everything happens exactly as God wants it. And we talked about how 
in Scripture, there's this arc of creation starting in paradise in the Garden of Eden, and everything is good, and everything is as God wants it, and then there's this brokenness that enters into the story, but God's doing something about it, and he's moving the broken creation to be redeemed and restored and moving it back to paradise. And so we talked about the end of Scripture when, when God comes back and, and we're with him in paradise. So we looked at forgiveness and we looked at paradise, and today I want to look at these words from Jesus. And I just want to reflect on what he says and allow us to understand a little bit more who he is and go deeper with our understanding of who Jesus is. So, John chapter, <clears throat> John chapter 19. John 19, verse 28. Jesus is on the cross. He's already had a few conversations with people. He's already said a few things. But in verse 28, it says this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said this. I am thirsty. I am thirsty. Jesus is up on the cross. He's been tormented. He's been up there all day. And he says these words, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked the sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. But these words, Jesus says, I am thirsty. So there's kind of like a, you know, a Captain Obvious moment where, no duh, he's been tortured all day. He's been completely drained. He's dehydrated. Of course he would say this. He would say that he's thirsty. Who wouldn't be going through that? So we can read over that and just think it would be kind of a typical plea from someone that's on a cross. But then as we start to look at kind of the details of this passage, when Jesus says, I am thirsty, and what leads up to him saying, I'm thirsty, what we find is that there's something more here that he's revealing. There's something more here that these words show us about who Jesus is. And even the, ver the verse that comes before Jesus says, I am thirsty, tells us something. It says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, he says this. So what we find is that there's something being fulfilled here in what Jesus is doing and in what Jesus is saying. And it's interesting, when you think about Jesus, the Son of God, thirsting for something. If you know the life of Jesus, you know this is the man that turns water into wine. This is the man that has the power to walk upon the water. This is the man who has the ability to calm the storms, the wind, and the waves obey him. He has that power over creation, and yet here he is in need, saying, I am thirsty. What is going on here? We find is that as Jesus starts to kind of reveal who he is, when it comes to the fulfillment of scripture, there's something deeper going on. Jesus says, I am thirsty. He also refuses a drink earlier on the cross. It says in Mark, in Mark's telling of this story, that they offered him a drink, and he said no. But here he says, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. So these words, these words tell us that all the promises of God are being fulfilled through Jesus on the cross. All the promises of God are being fulfilled. When Jesus says, I am thirsty, what we find is if you are reading through the Old Testament, what you find is that God is promising to bring restoration and redemption to the world, to creation. And it's happening through Jesus. And when Jesus says, I am thirsty, he's actually bringing about the fulfillment of this promise. We would call it a prophecy. A prophecy that, that God was going to come save the world through a Savior who was going to suffer on the cross. A Savior that was going to be tortured on the cross. Jesus says, I am thirsty because he's fulfilling this promise. What we find is that as Jesus is on the cross, oftentimes he's quoting 
psalms, the psalms of David. And when he says, I am thirsty, he's bringing this connection to Psalm chapter 69. In verse 3, it says, when, when David is suffering, it says, I am weary, and my crying out, my throat is parched. And then he says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And what David is alluding to is Jesus. And so many of these passages in the Old Testament, what they're actually referring to is the Savior that was supposed to come, Jesus. Jesus. Everything about the Old Testament, everything about the Scripture leads to Jesus. Now, for the Jewish people who are receiving this uh, story from John, John's account, they would know their Old Testament well. And Jesus starts to make these connections between what he's doing in this world and on the cross with what these older scriptures are talking about. And so people are starting to connect the dots. Oh, this is what David was talking about. This is what the minor prophets were talking about. This is what, the, this is what all of these writers of the Old Testament were talking about. They were talking about Jesus. And the Old Testament starts to come alive and become real through the life of Jesus. And everything in these Old Testament, all these things that people are pointing to, they're pointing to Jesus, this moment on the cross. Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. He's the fulfillment of Scripture. So when he comes to say, I am thirsty, he's fulfilling this idea that the Savior would come, that the Savior would suffer, that the Savior would thirst. It's a fulfillment of prophecy for him. Now, that is uh, kind of like, when you read it backwards, it, it's, when we read it just from what Jesus says, it's like, oh, well, obviously that's you know, not a big deal. But for the Jewish people who hear this, it would be like, kind of like watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Maybe like uh, The Sixth Sense, where all of a sudden there's this twist at the end and you find out that Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time, right? And you look back and you're like, oh, I knew it. I knew That's what was happening here. They were giving hints that, that he was dead this whole time. And, and now it all makes sense. When Jesus is on the cross and he says these words and it's this fulfillment of prophecy, he's connecting the dots of all of these things that the Old Testament was pointing to. So there's something in this scripture um, that for these Jewish people would have all of a sudden made sense. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And when he's making this, I am thirsty, he's, he's bringing this all back together, this idea. Uh, the second thing that we learn from this, not only is Jesus the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament, but this word is spoken uh, to show us that Scripture grounds us in our moment of suffering. Scripture grounds us in our moment of suffering. The first thing is that there's suffering. Jesus actually suffers on the cross. The Son of God who has power over all creation. The Son of God who has the ability to do whatever he wants suffers for us. He suffers. He thirsts for us. He thirsts. He goes through the torture. Everything a human could feel, Jesus feels. And for us, when we're trying to relate to God, and we're trying to understand who this God is, who's created everything, and this great being up in the sky, and he's omniscient, and he's omnipresent, and he's huge. How do you relate to a God like that? And God says, you don't have to because I'm going to relate to you as a human. And he sends Jesus into the world. Jesus becomes like us to show us what God is. And he, he, walks, he walks on the earth, and he, and he does what humans do. And so now we have this understanding in our relationship with God that we try to relate to God, but God actually relates to us through the life of Jesus. Everything is centered on who Jesus is. He suffers 
for us. What we also find is that in his suffering, as Jesus does suffer, as he does thirst, Scripture is on the forefront of his mind. So the Scripture, the narrative of of God's story, is what grounds him in his suffering so that he's able to understand he's part of this bigger story, this bigger cosmic plan of rescue and redemption that is in this world. Jesus is able to, to draw from the Psalms, to draw from the prophets and say, this was supposed to happen so that God could do his work through me here on this earth. Jesus is grounded. The forefront of his mind is that he's a part of this story, that God is working in this world. And the scripture is what grounds him. The scripture is what, uh, where he finds basically his, his part of the story. I love what Tim Keller says when it comes to Jesus on the cross, when it comes to him with understanding scripture and fulfilling scripture. He says, when you prick Jesus Christ, when you stab Jesus Christ, he literally bled scripture. He knew the scripture so well. He thought about the scripture so pervasively. It so saturated and permeated his whole being and his imagination and his feelings and his will and his knowledge that it shaped him, Jesus, instinctively. The scripture shaped every part of him. His nobility, his courage, his peace, his faith, all happened because he was saturated with scripture. I love that idea that Jesus, even though he's God, knows the scripture so well that he's able to understand his place in the story so that when he suffers, he knows that he's suffering, but God is at work in the midst of the suffering. And for us, when we suffer, when we go through difficult times, when we go through trials, to be grounded in the scripture, to be grounded in this understanding that outwardly we might be wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day, that there's something else going on in this world. Understanding the scripture gives us life. Uh, That was Tim Keller's quote. This is my quote, not nearly as eloquent, but understanding scripture, God's story, it shapes us, it grounds us, it tells us our place in the story, it empowers us, it guides us, And it points us to the resurrected Jesus who suffered and was murdered and conquered death. For Jesus, he knows the scripture. He knows the fulfillment of the prophecy. He knows what God is doing in the world. And he uses that scripture on the cross to say, this is what's happening. And I gladly give my life for it. I've gone to counseling a couple times in my life. I've got a great counselor right now who helps me work through my issues. We all have issues, I have issues. But one of the things I struggle with is kind of like fear and insecurity. And I love the acronym fear is false evidence that appears real, right? Fear is uh, something that uh, we don't like to, to, to say that we have, especially if we're men, um, because we're like great softball players and all that. Uh, but fear, dealing with my own fear, my own insecurity, one of the things that I've learned is when I deal with some of those issues, what my counselor has said is to name whatever that fear is whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're worried about, whatever you're insecure, name what it is, and then find God's promises in Scripture to combat that fear, to combat that insecurity, and then start praying that Scripture until that fear goes away, and all of a sudden, you have confidence in God's promises. I think that's what being grounded in Scripture does for us. And I think for Jesus on the cross, as he suffers, as he gives his life and feels the weight of the world and the brokenness of being crucified on the cross, he's able to draw from Scripture and say, this is happening because God is moving in this world. And whatever it is that you're going through right now, to understand the Scripture and God's promises is to understand that in the midst of your circumstance, whatever it is, however desperate it is, however painful it is, that God is at work in you. 
We may not understand what God is doing. And for most people who saw what was happening on the cross with Jesus, they probably thought God had just completely abandoned him and this whole plan was falling apart. And Jesus had this knowledge that from the scripture that I'm grounded in, God's promises are good and they're true. I think for us, being able to look back at the scripture and see how God was faithful to his people throughout history and how God has been faithful to us in the midst of suffering. So the scripture grounds us. And then, also, the word is spoken reminds us the significance of water. The significance of water, that Jesus thirsts. If you look throughout scripture, water is used in many different ways. It's very symbolic. What we find is that, at one point, Jesus talks about how he's the living water. But water is always tied to the people of God throughout scripture. In us living in the desert, we understand the importance of water. It's starting to get hot. We're starting to go out and hike again. In the wintertime, I'm able to hike Camelback without a bottle of water. Uh, in the summertime, I can't even get a quarter of the way up the mountain without water. Water is absolutely essential. What we find in scripture is that water is used, it's a life giver. Water is a source of life. And for the Israelites who, after they leave Egypt during the Exodus, and they're out in the wilderness, they have no water. And there's this story where they cry out for water, and Moses goes to God. And he says, we're going to die without water. And so God provides water for them through this rock. And Moses goes, and he hits the rock, and there's this water that comes, and there's life that comes from the rock. For the Israelites in the wilderness, water was the giver of life. And there's this interesting connection that the Apostle Paul makes with that story. and says that rock was actually Jesus, and the water was coming from him. Water is also used as, as provision that God provides for us. He provides for us life, uh, provides for us the source of life, which is water. Water is used as purification through Scripture. Uh, in the Exodus story, when you see the Red Sea, when these Israelites are coming out of Egypt, and all the things that enslave them, when they cross the Red Sea, all the things that enslave them, their Egyptian captors, are washed away, and the sea closes on them. They pass through the water, and all the things that enslave them are washed away. We have the same thing in, in our Christian story called baptism. Baptism is this idea that we pass through the water, and as we go through the water, we experience this new life. It's symbolic of coming out of the water, and all the things in this world that oppressed us are left in the water, and we come out with this new life. Uh, that's what baptism is. Water is this unstoppable force used throughout Scripture, and we find it again and again. And so as Jesus starts to say, I thirst, there's this connection from what he actually says earlier in the, in the book of John. There's a story where he meets this woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he goes to her and he says, I'm thirsty. And there's this conversation that, that takes place between Jesus and this woman at the well, where he says, I thirst and I'm thirsty. And I just want to read these words and hear what Jesus says about, his, about himself. He goes to the woman at the well, and he says, will you give me a drink? This is in John chapter 4. And this woman who was a Samaritan said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her and he said this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, uh, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then the conversation goes on and Jesus says this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up 
for eternal life. So Jesus makes this connection with the water again. And he says that he is the living water. And that those who go to Jesus for life, as the source of life, those who go to him for the purification, to have all the things washed away from us that enslave us, to those who go to him who are weary, Jesus offers them this water. And Jesus says that I am the living water. And when you drink from me, you shall never be thirsty again. So there's this interesting time where Jesus is on the cross and the living water becomes thirsty. We have this idea in our Christian story that says that Jesus was the substitution for us on the cross. And so this story tells us that Jesus thirsts so that we don't have to. When Jesus is on the cross and he says, I am thirsty, the living water, the source of life, says I am thirsty because on the cross, he thirsts so that we don't have to be on the cross and thirst anymore. And the invitation is to come to Jesus to drink from the life that he gives, the life that is abundant, the life that is eternal, the life that leaves us so we're no longer thirsty. Jesus on the cross says, I am thirsty so that you don't have to be. So today, as we reflect on these words of Jesus, the simple a simple challenge for us as we head towards Easter. But Jesus is on the cross and he says, I am thirsty. The source of life, the living water, thirst for us. What do we do about that? I don't know if you have any kind of uh, relationship with this Jesus, if that's alive and that's active. If your relationship with Jesus feels like a source of water, that's the promise that it is. Our souls all thirst for something. Jesus offers us the living water from the cross. So the hope today is this. If you've never had a relationship with Christ, that you would trust Jesus today. Whatever it is that you thirst for, whatever it is that you ache for, that you would come to the cross and say, I trust Jesus, that his thirsting is for me so that I no longer have to thirst. That you would trust Jesus with your life. That you would trust a relationship with him. The second thing is that if it's true that you have relationship with Christ and it's alive and it's active, that you would stay faithful, that you would know in the midst of whatever you're going through, in the midst of your suffering, um, that there's a bigger story that's going on here, that God is at work in our world through Jesus and he's working to redeem and renew and restore the world. So from that, you would find life. And in the midst of whatever you're going through, you would know that his promises are true, that God is at work, that God is good. So we close every service with this time of communion. Communion is a time for us to center our lives on what Jesus has done on the cross. When we take communion, we're remembering what Jesus said on the cross when he died for us. And it's symbolic of what actually happens, that on the cross, Jesus' body is broken open. And so we have this bread that represents the broken body of Christ. And then we have this juice that represents the blood that was poured out. And it's interesting that when Jesus is on the cross and he's pierced, both water and blood flow from him, are poured out as he suffers on the cross. So the movement today to trust Jesus and to stay faithful, as we move to our time of communion, that you would take this time to remember what he's done, and that you would drink the cup of life, the cup uh, that keeps us from being thirsty again. 
that you would take the bread that was broken open for you and that you would find restoration in it. I know uh, whatever you've carried into this room today, um, wherever you're at in life, Jesus offers to come and drink the fountain that never runs out. Let us pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for your words from the cross. That you would suffer from the primal craving of thirst. That you would show us that you're human, that you can relate to us. Lord, that as you suffered, God was at work. And in this terrible story of your death, God was conquering death and bringing about life for all of us. Lord, we trust you because we know that you endured the worst things in this world. For those of us who are enduring very painful things right now, Lord, let us know that you are with us. Lord, let us know that you understand exactly what we're going through. Let us know that our story isn't over yet. But you have a way of making dead things come to life. You have a way of making broken things be healed and restored. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for this promise of paradise. We thank you for the living water. Lord, I just ask your blessing um, on us today in this sacred moment. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd stir our hearts, that we'd have an encounter with you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.